Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. Our series has been called Ordinary Radicals. Ordinary Radicals, the God who saves in his audacious church. And the original intention was for us to come into this series and really uh, sort of sermon by sermon look at some of the characteristics of the church designed by God that in the midst of being regular people, make us radical in the midst of the world. And I got to tell you, even over the last couple of weeks, uh, everything that has happened, not only with Hannah, but but in other things that have been going on in other people's lives as well, boy, God has been taking us beyond the page of a sermon, hasn't he? He's really been taking us into the reality of what it means for things not just to be what we say, or even to say that we believe it, But when it really happens to say, no, this is actually who we are. This is actually who we are. It's it's times like these we take a moment to to look each other in the eye. And I, for one, have to say, not just as an elder, but I would say for the vast majority of you in here, a friend, I would hope, just let me know afterwards, that it's a great privilege to do that with you, to look each other in the eye and say, this is who we are. This is who we are. And I'll talk more about the honor of that soon, but just know that's my heart. I, I, I think it's great to hold to these key things. I think it's great to have the times where our reaction is, no, what God says about himself, who he is, and about us is just true, and we're going to act on that. And then we see him be faithful, and we see him be faithful. So ordinary radicals, the God who saves in his audacious church. And I, I thought of, as we, as we get back into a little bit of the preaching of this series, I, I, I was wrestling through and just kind of enjoying thinking on some of these things that I'm talking about that we hold true together, that we hold as true. We look each other in the eye, and when the chips are really down, they are what, they are what we not just say we believe, but what we actually act on. And I want to just go through a couple of those things first before we, before we jump just right back into the series, if that's okay. Firstly, it's great to hold to the unchanging truth that God's kingdom is never in retreat. God's kingdom is never in retreat. Though there's brokenness, Though there's sickness, though there's pain, though there's injustice, and though the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, as the word says, God is never overmatched. He's never caught off guard. He's never confused. He's never taken aback. He's never outflanked or outplanned. He's never boxed into a corner and wondering what his next move should be because, gosh, he just didn't see this coming. God's kingdom is never in retreat. His purposes always stand. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His word reminds us of that in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's not a verse to slam us or put us in our place. That's a verse to remind us of where and who God is. He's the God who saves, the God of the impossible, the God for whom the miraculous and doing the miraculous is but a breath of an afterthought, just an afterthought. And his love for us, as we were singing today, remains confoundingly unconditional, rooted in his character, his love is. And his love is unmissably displayed unmissably displayed. I am making up words, but that's okay. Microsoft Word was telling me they weren't words, and I was like, add to dictionary. Now it's a word. 
<laughs> just love technology. You do what I tell you, Microsoft. <laughs> Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior to save. He will take, listen, he will take great delight in you. Mighty warrior takes great delight in you. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. His love is confoundingly unconditional and unmissably displayed because his kingdom is never in retreat. I also love holding to the fact that God's church is uniquely and perfectly designed. God's church, that's us, is uniquely and perfectly designed. Ephesians 3, one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture. I believe it will be behind me. I made this PowerPoint, but I can't remember if it is. So his intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, beyond this realm, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him... And through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I wish we could just preach on that today. Of all the ways, of all the instruments, of all the approaches that God could use to to display the splendor, the fullness of his glory, he chooses the lowly, humble, human, sometimes stitched together, but in this case, really handsome church. He chooses the church, the bride of Jesus. The saved, redeemed, bought with a price, new creations, 2 Corinthians tells us. Fully, newly recreated. So how has God designed us? If that's his purpose, how has he designed us? He actually has designed us as a body. The body of his son Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Follow me here. Jesus was bodily present on this earth for a time. Was bodily dead and bodily resurrected and then bodily ascended into heaven. And who are you and I now? We are the body of Jesus still here, still here. God's church is uniquely and perfectly designed. God's church is both universal and local. I love holding to this with you. God's church is both universal and local. Throughout the New Testament, we see the church being given universal instruction into local expressions. Universal instruction into local expression. The church is everywhere and in its specific somewheres. Everywhere and specific somewheres. Jesus, address, Jesus himself addresses specific churches in the book of Revelation. The majority of the New Testament instruction is taken from letters to who? Churches. Letters to churches. And we express our reality right now in this day, our reality of being the church of Jesus in this expression, in this church, church in the city, in this city of Chicago, this nation, this time, this age. And I got to tell you, instead of just glossing over that, I find real honor in that. Peck, I'm excited and honored that of all the times that God could have had me live in all the places that I, I live I live in your time. I'm part of this church with you. Now, this age, Steve, Taylor, 
This is, this is, this is where we are. This is when we are. You ever, you ever think about that when you think about heaven and you think, and I, honestly, I've never been to heaven, um, read a lot about it, excited to be there, excited for it to come to earth more and more. But you remember, the, you remember thinking like, whoa, it's going to be super cool to like talk to David one day in heaven. It's like, man, how are you? So, good to talk to you. I think we're going to be pretty preoccupied with Jesus, but if we are talking to one another, can I just say this? I think David's going to run up to you, Ashley. He's going to say, okay, what was 2018 like? Amazing that you got to be the church then. Wow, on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, when he's pouring out his spirit, and wow, what was the world like? And you're like, how many stones did you take to Goliath? He's like, I don't want to talk about that. Tell me what 2018 was like. There is supreme honor and great privilege in being the church locally expressed right now. Right now. And next year, when I'm showing the next victorious ping pong tournament video, there'll be honor in being the church right then too. God's church is universal and local. And you know what? Bringing it even closer to home, you know what I love holding to with you, if I can just be honest? I love holding to the fact that God is sharpening who we are as church in the city. God is sharpening who we are, this local expression. In the last year and a half, we have really been on quite a journey hearing God on so many different things, but on something primarily around God speaking and emphasizing through his word the truth that our faith must be firmly rooted in him, that our faith must be firmly rooted in him, not just the faith in Jesus that brings salvation, although, of course, that faith, but the faith of an obedient and responsive church, individually and corporately. The faith of an obedient, responsive church, intently waiting on and responding to God's voice in submission to God's word, which God's voice will, by the way, never contradict. (coughs) That obedient and responsive church. We've seen it in the incredible testimonies that have come from this body over the last year and a half. Unbelievable things. I'm not just talking about times like Testimony Sunday where we make the whole deal about it. Just testimony after testimony. I know the conversations that you've been having with one another and you see the incredible things that God is doing. We've seen it in trusting God for a space, a building within the city to call our own and the journey that we've been on there. We've seen it in over a year of trusting together to bring Aiden and Eloise and their kids over from South Africa to the U.S. Why? Because we heard God say, and they heard God say, and we said, yes, and Lord, we're trusting for it, and God brings it to pass. And we've seen it in this last week and a half where we stand in faith, trusting for God to heal and fully restore Hannah Sudworth. Not to mention the other incredible ways that God has healed and set free and restored people right here in this room. God is sharpening who we are. And part of responding to God's prompting of this emphasis on our faith, our obedience, our yes, our responsiveness to him, part of that is that in two weeks' time, we're going to begin an exploration as a church about reshaping and recommunicating our vision and values. Not changing who we are. Not changing who we are. Sharpening who we are. Coming more into clarity as to who we are. Walking away with more of an ownership of, I know who we are and I know who I am in this and I know how I walk it out. Being sharpened in what we believe, how we work it out, and how we interact with the world. So I get to do a sermon announcement too. 
But March 4th, can I just say, it's going to be, we're going to start 10 weeks of exploring that. And these are just not 10 weeks to miss. They're just not. Be here and be excited as we go through this together. It's the essentials of who we are in a world that cries out for Jesus. So I just want to say from the top, these things I counted as a privilege to hold you together. They're radical things. They're, they, they serve a radical purpose and they indicate evidence of a radical people. And why are these things important? Why, why is it important for these times of, of looking each other in the eye and saying, wow, this is really who we are? Well, I'll tell you, because there's actually real significance in deeply knowing who you actually are. There's significance in that. How many of you have ever, ever taken a personality test? How many of you have ever done like 23andMe or Ancestry.com or something like what? There's significance. Sometimes there's very real uh, health significance, for example, of knowing who we are. And sometimes there's, there's personality significance. There's meaning in knowing who we are. And it's like, yes, you wake up every morning and you see yourself and, and you feed yourself and dress yourself and you go about your day and that's who you are. But it's not who you are. There's something of who you are. A year ago, Jess and I took a trip to New York and we stood in Ellis Island. And we started retracing and going back and seeing how people risked everything to come. It's like, man, that's part of who we are. It's part of who we are. It's a heavenly deposited part of what makes us in the image of God, knowing who we are. So here's a little bit of who we are. Because I don't want to answer this question of what an ordinary radical person or church looks like without diving into a little of who we are. Is that okay? In John 1, John makes this unbelievably amazing statement. When he's talking about Jesus and all the fullness of being the word of God and then becoming flesh, being gifted to be among us. And he says in verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. So as we ask this question, how has the God who saved radically designed his audacious church? And we say, well, yes, he's radically designed it. Why? What does that mean? Is that a buzzword? Well, here's what I think it means. Take a look at this picture um, that's about to come up, okay? On the right is my son Gideon a few days after he turned three. On the left is Gideon back in 1984. (laughs) Now that's me a few days after I turned three. Now here's the thing. You could do a paternity test if you wanted to. (laughs) We could Jerry Springer this thing and you could paternity (laughs) test it. But spoiler alert, I'm his dad. I'm his dad. Gideon cannot help but display the DNA from which he comes from. So when I ask the question, what is, what is it that is radical about us, God's audacious church? I say this, the radical church is the one that simply and unmistakably displays the DNA of her father. Just displays the DNA of her father. And a side note really quick on the word radical. I know that radical is a cultural buzzword right now. And it's usually used in one of two ways, at least that I pick up. It's either used as a compliment, like, hey, We are radical because we want to transform something that necessarily must be transformed. There's a a wrong that is present, and me and some others, and we we agree that it has to be transformed, and so we're going to transform it. We're radical. 
And I think that's, that's fine. It's a fine use of the word radical. There's also kind of a, a detriment, kind of an uh, insult way of using the word radical. And that is that these people over here, they are out of step with the spirit of the age and the zeitgeist. They're, they're too out of step with it. They're radical. They're radical. And depending on how you use the word, it can bring a different connotation, right? Well, I want to submit to you that I think God has both the compliment and the detriment for you and me as the church. Because he has called us to transform what necessarily must be transformed. He has. I'm sorry, but if we carry the incredible DNA of our Father, given to us freely by his Son, Jesus Christ, because of the saving power of that name, dead can rise, injustice can be healed, brokenness can be done away with, relationships can be restored, disease can be destroyed. What necessarily must be transformed can be transformed. And you know what? It's going to look out of step with the world. Not that that's the goal, but it's going to. It's not going to jive with the zeitgeist. And can I just say, I, don't, I, I personally don't believe that God created us to be out of step. He created us to be in a world that was harmonious and perfect and with him forever. And it wasn't God who moved. Through our sinfulness, the world is sinful and broken. Through our sinfulness, the world has fallen. So God is, the fact that our radicalness looks out of step with the world is not due to God being a knucklehead. It's due to the world having moved. You and I have moved. So displaying God's heart will always be at odds with the world, but it's also the supreme yearning of the world. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has put eternity in the heart of man. Jesus is the longing of the nations. And one day, when we're in his presence forever, it actually won't be radical. Because displaying the splendor of God will also be the spirit of the age forever. It won't be radical anymore. We actually won't have faith because we'll have sight. There won't be evangelism because we're there. But right now, it's radical because what's transformed must, must be transformed. And it's at odds with the world. Does that make sense? So in asking the question who we are, this radicalness, it's, it's, we're reveling in the DNA of our Father, but it's going to look out of step with the world. So with that in mind, we've been looking primarily at, in this idea of the church, at the early church, the first manifestation of the designed radical body of Jesus as the church. And I love this phrase, early church. Uh, sometimes I think we get a little caught up on it, and I think we do it in one of two ways. Either we idolize the, the, the early church and we just say, man, they were so pure and raw and like, look at that. I just read Acts and I'm just hungry. And, and because of that, I just can't go into a church today because, wow. Oh, church today. I was listening to the early church podcast and it's way better. than it's, And we idolize the early church if we're not careful. Or we can dismiss the early church. And that usually sounds like this. Hey, you know, amazing things happening, but I think they're pretty much done now. And also, culturally, we're way, we progressed way more. And a lot of that stuff just doesn't translate. And so I'm just, it's not all for me. Cool stories, not all for me. We can be dismissive. Well, I want to say this. Whether you idolize or dismiss or wherever we fall in between, because I think we all kind of do, can I just say this? The Bible never speaks of the early church. The Bible speaks of the church. There's no early church. Early is the term as to it was 2,000 years ago. We give it that term. 
And it's key to us because it is the first demonstrative, instructive, biblical expression. So we study the early church to study the church. Yes? You guys are looking at me like you're mad at me. Sorry if you... When we read the book of Acts, it's our own 23 and me. It's our DNA. It's where you came from. It's tracing ancestry. What I love about this is I look across this room, and physically, ancestry comes from a lot of places in this room. It's beautiful. But the ancestry of the church, that's what we're studying. Because it's the first biblical demonstrative instruction. So in the midst of that, we've been identifying key characteristics of this church that, that we see as radical, that we see as radical expressions of the Father's DNA. And two weeks ago, if you can remember back, Steve began this series by looking at two key characteristics of the early church. And I want to just remind us of those before we look at a few more today. Is that okay? You guys all right? Still friends? That's what I'm really concerned about, like, like it shows in my ping pong videos. Steve preached firstly on the lordship of Jesus and the way that the church held unswervingly to the lordship of Jesus. What does this mean? It means living with the tangible reality that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is fully man. He defeated death. He is the death-defeating son of God who is the full revelation of God the Father in the flesh, on earth, dead, resurrected, ascended into heaven. He is Lord Everything is under his feet. God, God the Father has exalted him. There are no asterisks. There are no corollaries. Jesus is Lord. There is no one B. Jesus is Lord. And that that actually doesn't conflict with the fact that he's also Savior. Neither one is diminished or encroached upon by the other. In fact, when we see multiple times early on in the book of Acts, we see Peter get up and we see him sharing the gospel with boldness, usually in response to an an act, a sign, a wonder that has occurred. And he always starts off with the fact that Jesus is undisputably Lord. He's unabashedly Lord. And then, by the way, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to be saved because Jesus is also Savior. But the understanding of Jesus' lordship was crucial to the heart of the early church. He is at once Savior and Lord, and that merits our obedience. And you know what? That's radical, because it will transform what has to be transformed, and it will be at odds with the world. It's radical. The early church also lived with the reality that we are a sent people. Steve preached on a couple weeks ago. We are a sent people. What do I mean by that? Well, because Jesus is Lord, he has the authority to commission our lives to place a call on our lives to proclaim him, to do what he came to do, and that is to seek and to save the lost. And what I love about this is there is the actual built-in intention of partnership from the start with God. In in the early verses of Acts, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, says, I, I wrote to you, Theophilus, who's the person receiving this book, of all that Jesus began, or I wrote a former book of all that Jesus began to do and teach. I love that phrasing, began to do and teach, because you know what happens like nine verses later? Jesus ascends into heaven. Who's going to finish what he's doing and teaching? You and me, the church, all that he began to do and teach. And it shouldn't surprise us, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, Jesus says, after his resurrection in John 20. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go therefore into all the world, making disciples. Jesus is sending us. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
just a little bit further in Acts 1. This idea of being a commissioned, sent, proclaiming people. The early church lived in this reality, and we live in that reality every day. And it gives legs to that churchy term, advancing the kingdom of God. Advancing God's kingdom. That is the reign and rule, the influence, the fame of Jesus. And it's radical because it transforms what has to be transformed. And it's at odds with the world. So really quick in the time that we have remaining, I, wanna, I want us to just continue to paint a little bit of this radical picture from the early church of the church. Ordinary radicals displaying the DNA of God the Father. Just a couple of things quickly. Our homes. Our homes. I know this is not an overly theological concept. It's actually a very practical concept. But it's, it was a radical link in that the early church had to displaying the DNA of their father. Acts chapter 2 verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Our homes are not intended to be a castle into which we retreat. To get away from it all. Not for the believer in Jesus. Not just places, they're not just places where we really live out who we are and then we begin to portray something else the moment we, we walk out into the world. They are places of rest, but not places of avoidance. There's a difference. Does that make sense? And if the church is a people and not a building, then the church must, must actually reach into our homes. And if Jesus is Lord and we are his designed body, then our homes must be a reflection of that lordship as well. Our homes must be a reflection of the fact that we are sent. And if they are, then our homes can actually be a secret weapon of setting the atmosphere of invitation to Jesus. People who will come into your home who would never be caught dead coming into a church. You can name 10 people right now who would laugh at your invitation to come to church, but they'll come hang at your house. And you know what? This is not a church. You are the church. You just invited them to church. Zing. Theological fine print right there. If someone is welcome in your home, they're welcome in your life. And if they're welcome in your life, they're welcome to be introduced to the Jesus that you know. And some will come here. And, they, and that's great. But your home can't be a place of avoidance. So just, just a practical question. I know this is not overly theological. I'm not an overly theological guy. How do you view your home? How do you view your home? Is it on lockdown? Is it the safe, unapproachable place in your life? Or is it a place where people can break bread with glad and sincere hearts and play Xbox and watch football and watch movies and come over and hang out and just be with you and begin to see the Jesus that you know? And just for free, you know, this is why we do connect groups. It's why we do connect groups, because we want to be in each other's homes. Because this is a wonderful part of church in the city, but it's not the only part of church in the city. So if you're not in a connect group and you're feeling disconnected, can I just say, be in a connect group. Get in a connect group. Get in somebody's home. It's radical because it transforms what has to be transformed and it's at odds with the world. Homes. Another characteristic of the DNA that's displayed by the early church is the fact that God moves in power on the edges of society. On the edges. Here's what I mean by this. One of the most dominant topics uh, in the church today um, and I know this because of all the emails and physical mail that I get about it e every week, is this topic of church growth. 
If you guys ever want to go to a church growth conference, I get like 10 invitations. You just let me know. Pick your spots, like at all expenses, pay vacation, wherever. They happen everywhere. If you Google church growth, within seconds, you'll get 1.3 million hits. All of them claiming to have the five or seven or three or 11 keys to growing your church. I read them all. They're fantastic. They're all out there. But most of them, the overwhelming majority of the thought on this idea of church growth is how to get the world out there to come in here. How to get the world out there to come in here. And you know what? What happens in here is, is necessary and primary and it's great and wonderful and meaningful and biblical and the value of what happens when we get together on a Sunday cannot be overstated. And I love it. I love that we're biblically called to do it. There's no question of that. We worship, we pray, we sharpen one another, we build each other up in a way that can't happen when we stay individual. Don't, do not hear me downplaying this. But the sum total of what God is doing is just not contained in a building. It's just not. A building is a place that enhances, not contains, what God is doing in a local expression of his church. The gospel is an advancing gospel, not a retreating one. So the early church, when we read in Acts, saw most salvations, most miracles, most signs and wonders and outpourings of the Holy Spirit happen on the edges of society. Just an example and we're nearly done. Peter and John going into the temple courts in Acts 3. And they see the lame beggar who's placed there. So they consulted their church growth manual. And they, they quickly learned that, well, that's a type of person you should avoid. Because they don't tithe. They don't look great on social media. And, um, and they're not, certainly not going to bring their friends. Wow. No. They healed him in Jesus' name. What happens? They just grew the church right there, church growth manual. And it's on the edge in two ways. Firstly, that it's not in a church building context. And secondly, it's on the edge of who society accepts. This is an incredibly marginalized, vulnerable, do-away-with-them individual. And not only are they making eye contact, they're prizing him as precious and believing full of faith that God not only knows them, sees them, but has a desire to intersect in his life. Church growth. And by the way, you know what happens? Let's read it. Acts 4. They, that is the religious leaders, because Peter and John start preaching the gospel to everybody who sees the lame beggar now walking. They're listening to Peter and John. And then the church leader, or sorry, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, are gathering around and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they, the, the, the religious leaders, seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Don't you love those regulations? But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Just the number of men, that's all they could count, at least conservatively triple that for women and children. This is not in the manuals. They're growing the church. And it's on the edges where we see the gospel advancing. So my question for you is, do you avoid the edges? Do you avoid the marginalized? Do you avoid the stigma and the risk that comes with proclaiming Jesus? Or do you believe and live like the gospel's never in retreat? Like the power and salvation of Jesus is key and present in every situation. It's radical because it transforms what must be transformed. And it's at odds with the world. 
Lastly, really quickly, the early church demonstrated the radical DNA of their father by not just being a designed body of Christ, as we've seen, but a called body. A called body. We live in a very leadership-centric society. Most of, us, most of us and everything that we do is centered around leaders. And you say, no, it's not. Well, eh, yeah, it is. Because most of us wait really intently to respond to what a leader tells us to do. And you say, well, I don't like my leaders. You're still leadership-centric because you're waiting to oppose what they tell you to do. Sorry, whatever you think about a leader, if you're, you're either in lockstep with them or you're in lockstep opposition, you're centered around them. You're preoccupied with them. I know that's uncomfortable, but it's true. So we derive our purpose from what a leader says or what a leader believes. And either way, you're centered around them. And God has designed the role of biblical leaders. And next week, we're going to dive into more of what that looks like because there's radicalness there in the way that God has designed leaders. But God did not design a unthinking, uncalled, spectacle-watching, sideline group of body, a group that is his body. He didn't design that. He designed a called, commissioned, activated body. And the leaders serve to do that in the church. Not waiting for a chosen few leaders to partner with God. One more, one more passage of scripture, Ephesians 4. Let's look, at how God, let's look at how God actually intends for the body to be built up. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Jesus himself gives this to the church. To equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Listen, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to, be, grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There are no sideline dwellers. A called, commissioned body of believers. And that's radical because it transforms what has to be transformed and it's at odds with the world. I'm a little long here, and we're going to bring this into landing, but I, this begs the question always, how do we respond? How do we respond? And in, in a moment, we're going to give opportunity um, to, ha- to, have some, to have some people stand with you in prayer if there's specific things that, that we can be praying for you about. But I, I think the response is this. Are any of the designs of God's church that we've been looking at tugging at your heart and bringing conviction and saying, well, I have been walking outside of that? I've been shirking that aspect of the greatness of God displaying his DNA. My my home is not what it should be. I I don't live like I'm sent. I avoid the edges of society. Boy, I I don't make a move without a leader preaching about it. I'm I'm certainly not putting any of those things down. I'm asking you, is that conviction rising up in you? It rises up in me. It's one byproduct of preparing sermons. You're like, wow, just super unqualified to preach this. Have we run away from what God is calling us to individually or corporately? Have we shirked 
the radicalness of displaying the DNA of the Father. And I just think that what God is doing corporately in this season right now is giving us an opportunity to re-risk on his faithfulness, to re-risk afresh on the way that he has intentionally, perfectly, uniquely designed us to be the church. And for the sake of time, I just want to, I want to pray that for us. But if any of that is resonating with you, can I just ask you just to take, just whatever it is, a posture of receiving. Maybe that's opening your hands, maybe it's standing, but it's a declaration to say, Lord, I'm re-risking, I'm re-saying yes to the way that you have designed us. And I know it's radical because it transforms what has to be transformed. And I know that it will be at odds with the world, but I know that you move because your kingdom is never in retreat. Your gospel is always advancing. So Lord, I just pray that in your name over hearts in this room right now. Lord, I pray where there have been constrictions and even lies and even predispositions, Lord, that have curtailed what you are speaking into hearts. I just pray that they would be gone in the name of Jesus. And instead, Lord, would you breathe afresh your invitation, the invitation to radically say yes to you, to radically say yes to you, Lord. And Lord, I pray for the unspeakable, wonderful impact that will come from us individually and from corporately, us as church in the city, saying yes to the way that you have designed us, saying yes to your lordship, yes to the fact that we're sent, yes to using our homes as invitation to you, yes to being on the edges of society where your power explodes, Lord, and salvation reigns, Lord Jesus, in your name, and yes to seeing ourselves as a commissioned body intentionally built, Jesus, to display your splendor as you have designed us to. We love you, Lord. And I pray that you root that in hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, we're gonna bring this series into land by looking at leadership, generosity, the power we walk in, and being a community that is on mission the radicalness of those four things. So be ready for those. And then March 4th, we start relaunching our vision and values. And I am beyond excited. So don't miss it. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.